Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We're so glad you are joining us. This is episode 134. We are recording this on Saturday, July 10th at 3 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me are Todd Plucknett, Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, how surprised were you that Giannis has been playing in the NBA Finals? Uh, I think Giannis is pretty spectacular, and the rest of that team is garbage. I think I'm a better offensive player than Drew Holiday. I mean, that team is terrible, and I think it it speaks to what a truly great player Giannis is that he's been able to... How did that team win two games without Giannis? That's the real question. Very suspicious. Their free throw percentage went up. Yeah, I think they rely on Giannis when he's on the court and when he's not on the court, they play a true team game. But yeah, I, um, I yeah. kind of like the bucks though. In the, in the next couple games, they they've been down two Oh before and they, they have a better home record. So I don't think the series is over yet, but uh, I think it's going to be hard to beat Phoenix in Phoenix. I don't know. The Suns feel like just one of those, what just complete teams, almost like the, what was it? Oh, four Pistons. Just like anybody on the court can beat you. Well, they're they're just getting hot from deep. I mean, they're like Villanova or something. Like that's pretty much what they remind me of. Yeah, I think if they miss a few of those threes in game two, that the game might have gone in a different direction. I mean, Giannis had what twenty five points in the third quarter. <laughs> Ridiculous. He's, he's got to be able to hit the rim on his free throws, though. I mean, it's like how yeah, how, that, how bad are ridiculous. you that you get the the crowd in your head that much? That that is getting ridiculous for sure, for sure. Well, we'll uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, like I said, this is Saturday. By the time you listen to us, you've probably watched games three and four or something like that. So it, it might be over by the time you're listening to it, which makes this very timely uh, banter we have at the top of the show. Well, let's also remember we have a global audience, and there's also <laughs> the Euro Cup tomorrow. And who do you guys have in the Euro Cup? England's playing, right? England is one of the teams playing. The other one is Italy. Italy, right? Yeah. Italy, okay. See, the well, way England, I... I guess, hasn't won like any sort of world title, I guess, in like 50-something years. So I guess I'll go with Italy. See, I broke it down like, you know, Fellini versus Hitchcock. Probably Fellini. Uh, spaghetti and pizza versus tea and crumpets. Definitely spaghetti and pizza. Um Boris Johnson versus Berlusconi, corrupt world leader. I would go with Berlusconi. So I think Italia, viva Italia all the way. <laughs> I mean, whatever you got to do, whatever you got to do. Okay. Oh, Zach, I don't know if I gave you this stat. I know I gave it to Todd. So once Mississippi State won the College World Series, there are now only two power five schools that have never won any athletic national championship. Can you name them? Uh, Northwestern? Nope. Oh, that was one wow. of my guesses. That was Did one of Todd's guesses. Too. Badminton or something? What was it, Todd? Something stupid. Oh, when North Northwestern did, like, I think they, they had, like, wrestling titles or something. 
Well, wow. the, the one, the bad one was Washington State. That was my other guess, and they won the boxing title in like 1943 or something. <laughs> wow! And I was like, apparently that counts. So yeah, eventually you got to run into like just like stumble upon a championship because <laughs> even Wazoo can do it. How about uh, how about South Carolina? No, South Carolina has probably won something. Um, uh, one makes uh, sense, and one I think is surprising. South Carolina won like a women's national championship in basketball like a couple years ago. And then they win like back to back college world series in the last decade. I feel like they did. One of them uh, is it, no, we, one of okay. one of them is fairly close to where you are currently at. Ooh. Uh uh K State? Yep. Kansas State is one. Wow. I, I gave up on the other. probably the closest that they've gotten ever. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the other one is Virginia Tech. Ah, good to know. I think Virginia Tech is kind of surprising in that stat. I think it's it's more surprising that Northwestern is not one of those two teams <laughs> than that Virginia Tech is. Yes, yes. Well, uh, make sure you are uh, finding our podcast everywhere and you are subscribing, rating, reviewing uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, Spotify, pretty much wherever you can find podcasts. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube uh, where we have snippets of our podcast as well as Adam's daily notes and uh, the almost sideways sideshow where we're deep diving band of brothers uh, getting right about at the halfway point of that right now. So, all right, Zach, what are you drinking? I'm having some fabulous free state uh, from LFK Amber ale at Astra. Whoops, not on camera. There it is. Can you see it? It looks beautiful. It almost has the same coloring as the color design in uh, uh, Snake Eyes. Mm. The st strong blues and oranges. I think De Brian De Palma would approve. <laughs> Todd, what do you got? Uh, the Subliminal State Hazy Pale Ale from the Pyramid Brewery in Seattle. Very nice. Very nice. There's also right. a really big eye in Snake Eyes, too. If you can't tell, I just watched Snake Eyes, so it's fresh on the brain. <laughs> so so I'm going to be the lame one here. I, I do not have alcohol. I have a... Uh, it, this is an, like an organic, homemade uh, soda uh, with some lemon-lime flavoring in it. But uh, I still have a lot of stuff I got to do tonight because I'm hopping on a plane tomorrow morning and taking some, uh, some of my students to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C.? Wearing the shirt. There you go. Yep. So, uh, I've, I've still got stuff to do tonight. Like, yeah, I can't, I can't have the, the mid afternoon beer right now. So I, I thought I, there was a tasting last night. <laughs> uh, no, 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 just, yep. Too much to do. So, yep. Well, we'll enjoy right. it without you. No you, problem. You do that. We'll probably have you, extra. You do that. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Have an, have an extra one for me. I want to I see you modsing it up by the end of this podcast, Zach. Okay, I'm on it. Dance and all. Dance and all. All right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's talk about what we've been watching this week and what our watches have been. Todd, I'm going to you first. And is this the last Cager entry for now? I mean, I'm gonna. It's gonna be at least another week until Pig comes out. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is the last official movie that I could call a cager, even though it's not really because it's a documentary. 
It is The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened from 2015. Uh, wow. Uh, directed by John Shep. It's a story about a movie that did not get made, but it almost did. I mean, it's it's it was going to be like a Superman reboot thing, and it was a passion project for everyone involved. They had the talent. They had they had Tim Burton coming back to the DC Comics. They had Colleen Atwood doing the costumes. Kevin Smith and Dan Gilroy were writing the screenplay. Supposedly, Sandra Bullock was going to play Lois Lane, and your boy Nicolas Cage was going to be Superman. And he looked absolutely legit in that suit. And it kind of would have been like some sort of legendary thing if he actually was able to make the movie. They, they start out with like these reactions uh, with uh, the director talking to like guys at, like Comic-Con and stuff. Like uh, when the movie was coming out in 2015, like wh- what do you think of Nicolas Cage would have been Superman? And, and like they're, it's all over the map predictably. It's like, well, he's one of the most distinguished actors in Hollywood history. I think it would have been a great fit. And some people were like, I think that would have been pretty distracting. And this other people was like, that would have been hilarious. I want to see that now. Like, I mean, and th- that's sort of what you're supposed to think going into this documentary. Because on, on paper, kind of ridiculous. Uh, Kevin Smith has some interviews. And it eventually is like story time with Kevin for like m- most of the first half hour of the thing. And just like his stand-up is. Because he he, he said he wrote the, the script basically as like fan fiction. And that he, he, he was like feeding into this like ridiculous legend of the whole thing. He clearly had a lot of affection for the, the material. And the the main problem was that like the egos involved were kind of outrageous. Like I mean, and and the studio just kind of botched the project. But, and they were in it like uh, Warner Brothers uh, sort of was like defrauded out of their rights to Superman by this guy who was a Barbara Streisand's hairdresser. And he's like the guy who was he's the guy who ended up being like the main producer and was like he was sort of a whack job. And he was like throwing demands at them like like okay, Kevin Smith. He, he can't fly in the movie. It looks fake. He can't wear the Superman suit. And he needs to fight a giant spider. I saw that in a movie once and it was really cool. And so they had to write this into the script. And, and it was just sort of like this giant mess. Well, but with these kinds of documentaries, uh, I mean, it sort of is interesting to me. Like how many people actually got involved in the movie before they eventually put it on the shelf is, is kind of fascinating. Because like this movie had moved forward quite a bit. And um, I think it sounded kind of fascinating, the whole idea of it, but it, it makes sense why I didn't get greenlit at the time. But it, it was like throwing all these stars and all this stuff at the at the screen. Like, like it almost like was going to be like something MCU-ish. Because, uh, I mean, that, that's sort of the way it, they seemed like their ambition was going with it. But I don't think the documentary is necessarily all that good. It's not really elaborate. Like with these, all, the, all that matters is the interviews and the information. But the, the director who's also the interviewer, is super boring. Like, but he's in every shot, and all he does is sit there and nod. And I'm like, well, like, like, can you just, like, focus on Kevin for a bit here? Or can you focus on, like, Tim Burton? Why do you have to be in the shot nodding and drinking water? But there, there was a lot of cool archival footage with Nick Cage. He doesn't actually get interviewed with it, which kind of sucks. But uh, they, there were some pretty extensive shots of him, like, in the suit and, like, him putting his his own touches on the character and, and and there were some interviews with him from the past where he was like like yeah we were gonna flip that character on his ear and like you know it was it was gonna be awesome and tim burton was like deeply emotional about the whole thing about and he's still upset that he never got to make the movie but i don't know i mean I, they go on too long with the costumes and stuff and like the uh the look of how they were gonna make the movie and like i don't care about comic books so all that stuff doesn't really matter to me i was more interested in like the studio stuff and like the hierarchy and and what actually happened and why all these flops led to this movie kind of getting destroyed. And uh, but yeah, it, w- it would have been something if this movie got made. 
the documentary is fine. It's two and a half stars, which puts it number 56 on the cager between Teen Titans Go to the Movies and Wind Talkers. <coughs> I don't know if it really qualifies for the cager, but it's the best I got. And and now you have you have officially seen all of Nicolas Cage's movies that have been released. Yes, in, including the uh, the uh, like sort of pseudo like pilot that was considered a TV movie for some reason. Right, 102 right. cagers. 102. <laughs> I'm 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 I mean I I feel accomplished. I don't know about you guys. It, it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. It took almost a whole year. But you've done it now. Now you've got to figure out what you're going to do next. Are, are we starting something new next week? Or are we are we going to revisit some old cagers? That That's what you need to decide. Yeah, I know. I need to figure something out. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, I'll go next with my anniversary watch, my Oscar anniversary watch. We're going back 10 years to one of the best animated film nominees uh i'll i'll say it was a spin-off of another series this is such a weird oh, category puss that in boots puss in boots that is exactly what it is yes uh i yes puss in boots uh <laughs> uh directed by chris miller not christopher miller from like 21 22 jump street lego movie stuff like that chris miller who's a completely different guy who also directs animated movies that, that really confused me for a little while there. Anyways, I, I really didn't want to watch this movie because it's like a spinoff of a series that at that point had kind of been dwindling with each, each Shrek sequel. But here we are, Puss in Boots. And I got to say, it was kind of entertaining. First off, the voice acting is incredible. You've got Antonio Banderas back as Puss in Boots. You've got a reuniting of him and Selma Hayek. Uh, Zach Galifianakis plays Humpty Dumpty. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton and Amy Sedaris play Jack and Jill, which is much better than Adam Sandler playing both of them. Um, Guillermo del Toro is a voice in this movie. Uh, I mean, it, it's got some great voice acting in there. And the, the premise is uh, Puss in Boots is helping Humpty Dumpty to uh, steal the magic beans, climb the beanstalk, and steal the golden goose. And that's that's the whole idea here. That's where it fits into all of the nursery rhyme stuff that Shrek always parodies. This one feels different, though, in that it, it feels like, as it is, it's Antonio Banderas... Selma Hayek, you know, who did the, the Robert Rodriguez movies like Desperado and stuff like that. It feels like a like a spaghetti western, Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino, PG animated movie. Like e the music feels right, the, the setting feels right, some of the staging feels right. And uh and it that makes it a lot of fun. Is that it's not just another Shrek movie, but it actually feels like one of these other directors and they're just kind of playing off of what they do. Uh, I'm giving it three stars. It, it, it's a solid movie. Uh, my kids were entertained by it, which is always a good thing too. Uh, they, they always like the, like the Shrek stuff and, uh, and Puss in Boots is a pretty fun character too. I, I didn't really realize how, how much fun you could have with that character uh, until this movie. So yeah, 
three stars, solid movie, but it was a really weird category. So it lost the, it lost to Rango, which is maybe the strangest winner they've ever thrown out there. And then it was up against Kung Fu Panda 2, A Cat in Paris, which I've already seen and is very, very good, but still a random French movie, and Chico and Rita. Such a random animated category. So Chico and Rita is the only one I haven't seen yet. So, yeah. Have either of you seen Puss in Boots? I mean, I watched it back then. <laughs> uh, I mean, Shrek is weird because it. I mean, a lot of those side characters probably could have had spinoffs. If, since this one was a pretty big hit, I, and, and I know that has some sort of a big following. So, five hundred fifty million global box office. Yeah, I mean, I. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't do a like throw money at, you know, Eddie Murphy and say we're doing a donkey sequel or a spinoff or something. You know. Yeah. Yeah. They could have done it, and it probably would have worked. <laughs> But I mean, they Shrek movies made money. They did the four. They did four Shrek movies. So maybe they just don't want to push that that any further. But Puss in Boots. I mean, it works. Do your kids like movies, Terry, or do yes. they get like bored? Um, the older one will get through. Usually, can get through a movie. Uh, the two year old usually takes. She she'll last usually maybe a half hour, and then gets gets distracted yeah because you know quentin tarantino has been on a lot of podcasts lately and he's talked about how uh his uh i think um oh yeah i've heard about this uh is a big fan of despicable me too and uh but it took like five times watching it or something yes they watched in increments apparently but he likes uh was it sam the fireman like that's his favorite (laughs) i just want to know why didn't he show his son shogun assassin i mean come on that's if we're talking about good parenting, because it's too long. Yeah, the movie is Probably. too long. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, Zach, it's to you now with your Criterion watch. All right, so this week I went to the country of Iran, not literally, but uh, through the, the vehicle of cinema, and I watched all three films in the Coker trilogy which uh, is three films directed by um, probably the most famous famous Iranian director, not named Farhadi, uh, and that director's name is Abbas Kiristami, who actually died a few years ago. Criterion has put out um, several of his films, uh, but um, this trilogy uh, is actually, it's sort of interesting. He didn't intend for these three films to be a trilogy. Um, they kind of get lumped together because Coker is the name of the location in which all these films take place. The first film is called... Uh, Where is the Friend's House? And it was made in 1987, and it's about these two schoolboys. It's a really simple story. Uh, Basically, one of them um, accidentally slips the other one his homework. And the one who has both homeworks feels really guilty, and he doesn't want his friend to get in trouble the next day for not completing his homework. So the over the course of the film, which takes place in you know a 24-hour period, uh, the friend tries to go to the neighboring village to track down his uh, uh, his friend to return the homework that he has not completed. Uh, again, there, you know, there's many movies from um, the Middle East, Iran, uh, that have a powerfully simple, almost neo realistic storylines. And Where Is the Friend's House is definitely one of them. It's a really solid movie and probably the most famous uh, Kiristami movie uh, from that kind of earlier part of his career. The second film is called 
and life goes on. And uh, it's a really interesting premise, which is that um, after the filming of uh, Where is the Friend's House, the village of Coker was devastated by an earthquake in 1990. And so, and life goes on is a kind of semi-documentary look at the director, uh, Kiristami, who in the movie is actually portrayed by an actor. He doesn't play himself, but the director and his young son driving back to the village of, uh, of a Coker to try to find the main actors from the movie that they had made uh, years earlier. Um, it's a really solid movie. I actually liked it more than uh, Where is the Friend's House, uh, in part because the movie is a lot more about uh, grief. And the title comes from this really nice line where um, they're actually setting up, as we just talked about the Euro Cup, they're actually setting up a, sort of a makeshift tent area to watch the World Cup. And the director asks one of the village people, how can you watch the World Cup right after all this devastation in your village? And the villager says, well, you know, life goes on. We got to watch soccer. Uh, the third movie, which was made in 1994, is called Through the the Olive Trees. And this is um, about, I mean, it, it keeps getting more and more meta. Um, it's about the making of the second movie, And Life Goes On. And in particular, there's one exchange in uh, And Life Goes On between the director and uh, a couple newlyweds who have survived the devastation of the earthquake. And Through the Olive Trees is about basically their complicated courtship on camera. We're not sure whether this is a made-up story that Kiristami made or whether this is like something that really happened that is basically just being reenacted for the camera. The bottom line is it kind of it's it's almost confusing even trying to talk about, it, especially what the third film is about. Uh, but what's kind of interesting is um, almost like Pixar movies, you know, the first film is so simple, so you know, ABC chrono chronological linear. The second film muddies the waters a little bit. And by the time you get to the third film, you don't know what's real, what's fake, what's reenacted, what's breaking the fourth wall, what's documentary, what's not. And uh, in a way, it, I think, really tries to deconstruct the cinematic lens. And Kiristami was big on that. Um, he, some of his other films include Ten, which is about a director who interviews people in cars. Kiristami also loved cars. All of his movies seem to take place in cars for some reason. That Actually, the, the Criterion Edition goes into a little bit why he was fascinated with cars and automobiles. He actually kind of moonlighted as someone who worked for the automobile industry uh, to help support um, him uh, producing films and making films. The third film, Through the Olive Tree, is the weakest of the three films, in part because it's not really about the devastation of the village. It kind of gets overshadowed by the director's own ego in a way. It's very, very Charlie Kaufman-esque. I mean, it's like him writing himself into the movie. It seems a little indulgent. So that one I give two and a half stars. I think the standout is the second one, And Life Goes On, which you can almost watch by itself as just a portrait of this rural village that is really just for, uh, trying to put the pieces together literally from this devastating earthquake. So all in all, a really interesting set. Uh, you know, these films were not available prior to Criterion um, restoring them. And Kirstami is a significant filmmaker. Uh, Close Up is another one of his films that Criterion put out a few years ago. It's an excellent film. Um, I would encourage everybody to check it out. Kirstami is awesome. Great, great filmmaker. So Coker Trilogy is a pretty awesome pick. Nice, nice. I think I've only seen certified copy. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the one where he uses, like, isn't Juliet Pinoche? I haven't seen that one. Juliet Pinoche is in that, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm def definitely worth checking out. I mean, the other kind of interesting thing is, you know, he won the Palm d'Or for A Taste of Cherry, which Ebert gave one star to and absolutely trashed. Ebert was not a huge fan of Kirstami, although I think he did like certified copy. But, uh, yeah, really interesting, unusual filmmaker in that he was always kind of um, throwing, blurring the lines between fiction and nonfiction. I like nonfiction. 
It's an interesting perspective. <laughs> uh, that might be the most random throwaway line that has ever been quoted on this podcast. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, well done. Well done. All right. So that is what we've been watching. It is now time to move into our featured review. And I, I know Zach is excited for this one because our we are getting back to our big time blockbuster popcorn movies, which are, you know, Zach's favorite. Do we have a graphic and for it? We Adam? do. Here, oh, here it is. Okay. Here it is. Ooh. Black Widow. Yep. Before I was an Avenger, I made mistakes. And a lot of enemies. His call signs Taskmaster. He controls the Red Room. They're manipulated. Fully conscious, but no choices. I should have come back for you. How many others are there? Enough. The movie that uh, Marvel fans have been waiting for for... I mean, you could say they've been waiting for it for like 10 years. Um, but uh, we knew it was already in the can this time last year because it was supposed to come out like last May. And now here we are in July of 2021 and we finally get a chance to see it. I'm going to go first on this one. Uh, Black Widow stars Scarlett Johansson as the as the Black Widow, the character she has portrayed in countless Marvel movies. And uh, really is, I think, is going on 11 or 12 years of portraying this one character. And this is going to fill a gap in her story from the end of Civil War when she left as a as a traitor after helping uh, several of the Avengers escape to when she shows up in Infinity War uh, to help with everything that Thanos is doing there. So what did she do in that time? Because she didn't show up in any of, the, any of the stuff that happened between those. And it fills in that gap in her story, but also goes back and tells us about her past. And some of these stories that have always kind of been alluded to, but never fully uh, explained or discovered through, uh, through the movies so far. So we get her own story to tell about that past, how she was a Russian spy, how that came to be. Who were the people that she knew? Who were some of these characters that may have been alluded to or side referenced at different times? And um, and going through that. So we, we open up on her as a girl and realize that she's been a spy for a very long time. And, uh, and she has uh, in her spy family, David Harbour and Rachel Weiss as Alexi and Melina are her are her parents, quote unquote parents. And she's kind of reconnecting with them through a, a series of crazy circumstances that all kind of revolve around who the person who was her sister in the spy family, who was Yelena played by Florence Pugh. And they are trying to uncover their past and fix what's going on as there is a black widow program of uh, brainwashed assassins that are basically running the world that are controlled by Drykov, who is portrayed by Ray Winstone, who is always fun to see in any movie, especially when he's as villainous as he is here. Uh, this movie, it, it feels very different than most other Marvel movies for several different reasons. 
with the uh, constant like looking back and rediscovering of the past and also some of the fight sequences, it feels very much like a Bourne movie more than a Marvel movie at times. Uh, but it still has to throw in those little those little fra- catchphrases or little little quips to remind you it's a Marvel movie here and there. I also think something that is very different about this movie is you're going back and filling in gaps of a character you've known for a long, long time. Usually these these side these side movies, these solo movies are telling a new story uh, or an origin story of someone you've already that's already been established. This is a story that as they were telling, it's like, yeah, it's, it's good to know a little more about black widow, but why? I I mean, why did we need this story? It's good to fill in some gaps, but I also like it when gaps aren't necessarily always filled in. Uh, It's a fun movie. I, I think Scarlett Johansson does great. Florence Pugh is amazing in this, and it looks like she might be a part of the MCU moving forward. Uh, David Harbour and Rachel Weiss are always great. David Harbour as an overweight, out of shape Russian super soldier that they had at one point. It's kind of hilarious. But I'm giving it two and a half stars. It was fun, but ultimately, I'm asking the question, why did this movie exist? And it, it doesn't feel critical. And for the MCU to open up their new, their the new phase of the MCU with a movie about a character we already know isn't going to be a part of it and to just kind of give her a swan song, I feel is kind of ridiculous. So uh, it, it felt more indulgent than MCU movies normally are, which is saying something. And for all the fun it was, I, I just, it, it, it was kind of pointless to me. Uh, we're going to go to Todd next. All right. Well, we reviewed this movie a couple weeks ago. It was called F9. It's basically the same movie. So this movie starts, <laughs> it starts out with these yeah, flashbacks to when these two are kids. And then we get this superhero named Dominic Toretto. I mean, Scarlet Witch or whatever her name is, Black Widow. And then she goes and she's on this mission and the person she's trying to find, oh shit, it was their sibling. And, you know, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, wow, this is, and oh, and Florence Pugh played a wrestler in Fighting With My Family and John Cena was a wrestler at one time. I don't know. It just seemed like, and plus they have all the things, but like, this is a, a, a mashup of all these other movies. Like Mission Impossible, like, did they even have masks? Like, <laughs> like literal face masks. <laughs> It's a board movie with like, I mean, they're in Budapest and and then she like climbs that building or whatever and then fights and fight. They fight in that loft. It's like, okay, that is a scene straight out of board. Like they literally watch a Bond movie in this movie. <laughs> it's also Star Wars. I mean, that Taskmaster character, I don't know what the hell that thing was, but it looked like a, a Star Wars, like Stormtrooper thing or like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mandalorian. Yeah, there you go. And one thing I also thought was funny is like, that 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 is played by an actress named Olga, and Olga is the name of the one character in Metal Gear Solid Two that was in the gray fox suit, and <laughs> and it looked very similar to the Taskmaster suit. I don't know what that actually has to do with how good the movie is, but I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I thought the movie had some cool effects. It, it sort of is all over the place. Florence Pugh is awesome, and and she is the star, and she will be a force in future movies because apparently. She was so good in this that they're like, okay, we're going to write her into the future of this. And but I 
I was lost with some of the characters, like the end credits scene, and like, am I supposed to know who Drykov was? I, I feel like they're getting to a point with the MCU where they're leaving behind like 90% of the audience who don't have like keep up with the constant expansion and like everything. Like, I, I'm not really sure who these people were or if I was supposed to know, especially when like they're, they're supposed to be this big reveal with the with the Taskmaster, and I'm like, I don't know who that is. It kind of looks like like Myra Enos, but I mean, I know she's not in these movies. Um, I don't know. I, I had fun with the movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's not original and it's the weird, like you were saying, the weird placing, like it should have taken, it should have come out when it takes place because yeah. now it's just, I mean, it's looking back instead of like the craziness of looking forward of, of like everything that happened in the, I mean, I, I guess the Spider-Man movies some, somewhat had, had a similar issue with after Endgame, but I don't know. It, it's also in that way, one that could stand on its own, which puts it in a weird place too because there really aren't that many movies in the since like i don't know in the last like 10 years there really aren't any that could stand on their own uh i think the actors are fun to watch except i got bored of watching david harbour uh rachel vice is cool and i i just don't think we needed scarlett johansson to have a movie to prove that she's a badass we already knew that from lucy and and other things but um florence Pugh is a star like she's sarcastic as hell and and she was convincing in that in the action scenes which i was kind of surprised by the movie's fine, and since it's basically F9, I'm giving it the same score, of two and a half stars. I would say that this movie... I, I disagree with your, your standalone comment, because I feel like this movie, in terms of story and plot, um, can stand less on its own than almost any other Marvel movie, because it is it is pulling from all the nostalgia of everything we've learned about Black Widow over the last ten years... And you need to remember this little piece and this little piece. And and Drykoff, I think it mentions him like once or twice. She mentions him in passing in different things. But it's it's like all these little things that you need to know about this character already that it it's like paying off for. Where I think a lot of the other Marvel movies can stand on their own. And then like the little mid-credit or after-credit scenes are like, okay, now this is how it ties into everything else. This felt like let's fill in a gap that was already there, and uh, and then we can move on because we we kind of did Black Widow dirty by killing her off and not having anything there. Well, I mean, I don't. I assume that that in the end credits, like that was somebody that has been shown before, but not in the movies, right? Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay, so yeah, so they obviously added that scene. Right. Right after because otherwise it wouldn't have made any sense chronologically well yeah but because yeah, that, were, this that... was supposed to come out before the show correct correct and uh I don't know. Hmm. that is interesting i hadn't thought about that because i watched that end credit scene too and i sort of understood what was happening but if it was supposed to come before the show how would anyone how would that make sense wasn't that character introduced on falcon and winter soldier yes and yeah, it, it so, may have and been this something was supposed to come out last summer. So yeah, I mean, it w- they had to have added that because they wanted to keep Florence Pugh in the in the right. movies. I, I, I would say I don't know. Maybe they reshot it to to change it up a little mm. bit because because even Crystal like Plummer. well well like even like Iron Man. If you remember Iron Man, the the end credit scene of that, you see Samuel Jackson pop up, and it's like, who's that? And and all and that kind of leads into everything else. So I. I it could have been something like that, but now that it's coming out after a lot of Marvel fans have seen that character, maybe it's uh, maybe it's a little different. Anyways, Zach, what are your thoughts on the movie? 
Yeah, uh, so I feel like Marvel movies, I took a lot of time to write down this thought, so I'm gonna make sure I get it right. Marvel movies can be broken down into three types of movies. The first movie is unlikely pairs, like, you know, Captain Marvel and Nick Fury, or like Thor and Hulk in Ragnarok, and, you know, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. A second type of Marvel movie is the time travel slash fish out of water, which also was, uh, you know, uh, Captain Marvel, but also Captain America, also a little bit of Thor in there. And then the third type of movie is backstories that are never truly backstories. Usually they're like characters that are failed experiments, like the Winter Soldier, in this case, like uh, Black Widow. I feel like this movie tries to combine all three of those, and yet you could also say that it's not really any of those three. You could say it's it's not really a time travel movie, but it is because it takes place five years ago. So I, that's time travel in my book. If you haven't seen Captain America uh, Civil War, you're gonna be lost like I was. I did not know what the hell I was watching at about the 20 minute mark. I was like, what? Wait a second, what's going on? Why is she on the lamb? I mean, I don't really care. Does anyone really care? I fell asleep about during that point too. By the way, shout out to Adam Daly who fell asleep twice during this movie. <laughs> we need to hear some backstory to that. And uh, still, he still gave it a positive rating. Oh, I, he, he, told, he told me he, he, the backstory to that was a 16 hour workday before he sat down in the theater. Oh, okay. There was a ta- that's, that's equivalent to there was a tasting last night. That's, uh, <laughs> this movie is interesting because i feel like black widow is definitely a top three most interesting avenger because her powers are not necessarily not really supernatural she's just a badass almost like in this in the vein of beatrix kiddo in fact there was some shout out in this movie a little bit to kill bill there's a there's a part where she fights off all the other black widows in a sequence that resembles the bride fighting off the crazy 88 uh, this movie is her origin story, but if we're going to compare it to Kill Bill, it would be like if Kill Bill Volume 2 did not have the Pi May sequence. What I was wanting in this movie was more information about how she got to be such a badass. And the movie kind of skirts the whole issue. We go from the flashback of the traumatic childhood to she's an Avenger. And there's no training sequence whatsoever, or there's no like understanding for how she got the way she was. Now, maybe there was some of that in the other uh, MCU movies that I'm I'm forgetting about, but I don't really think there was. Like, who the hell was she even recruited by? What, was it Nick Fury? Like, I, want, I was expecting to see more scenes like that. I think it would have made the movie a little bit more grounded in who the character uh, was and not this kind of reunion with people that we don't really have a whole lot of familiarity with. The movie does kind of turn into The Incredibles, which I think is a little bit of a disappointment. It's also a who's who of bad Russian accents. Uh, Florence Pugh, I think, has the best one, but the other th- three really need some help. Ray Winstone as the villain. All I kept on seeing with Ray Winstone as the villain was Mr. French. I mean, I don't know if you guys had the same experience. I kept on expecting him to say... It took a long time to realize it was him, honestly. There are guys you can hit, and there are guys you can't hit. And this is almost a guy you can't hit. But maybe with a bad Russian accent. (laughs) Um, uh, The fembots in this movie are very Austin (laughs) Powers. The the Taskmaster is basically the same character as the Winter Soldier. The backstory of uh, Black Widow is almost the same backstory as Scarlet Witch. There is a face swap in this movie that is just terribly lazy writing. Why the hell are they in Ohio at the beginning of the movie? And um, when you watch the movie, particularly in that last sequence, you just think, oh my gosh, this has just been a cash grab. In spite of all that, I'm giving the movie three stars. (laughs) 
it was entertaining. I mean, I did fall asleep, but that was the, those were during the parts that were confusing already because we don't know. I didn't understand her assassination of the leader of Wakanda. Like, I what? Uh, whoa! I don't. You know, I, I missed the boat on that one. Um, I like Scarlett Johansson as a character, like, and I like Florence Pugh. I thought they had a really good dynamic in the movie. I think they're they're both the, the they're two they're the two strongest actors in the entire MCU. Uh, I think their scenes are are really fun. Um, I think there's a chemistry there. I think some of the fighting sequences were interesting because there wasn't bullshit Tesseract time travel ridiculousness. And there was no cameos by other members of the MCU, which thank God I was really relieved by that. Um, there's other some, than William Hurt. Uh, well, yeah, who's listed in the main credits and is about in maybe two minutes of this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I was hoping for something more like Red Sparrow, which really got into, that's a movie that I kept thinking about because Red Sparrow spent a lot, which is a movie I liked quite a bit, that spent a lot of time showing the Jennifer Lawrence character infiltrated by the, the, the Soviet Union and getting trained as this assassin. And that was not this movie, which is unfortunate. But what we're left with is something that, as Terry was alluding to earlier, doesn't really feel like the MCU. And as a result, that's what I liked about it. And, uh... Yeah, it, 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 it's not a great movie by any means, but uh, I think it's one of the stronger MCU movies. And you just have to kind of accept that uh, chronologically things might not make sense and it's a cash grab, but uh, it could be worse. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it for what it was. And you, and you didn't enjoy F9. This no, is F9 is, is a incredible. travesty piece of trash. <laughs> the same movie. It, listen, <laughs> F9 was two hours and 25 minutes. This movie's only two hours and 15 minutes, okay? Although if you count the 10 minutes, you have to wait until the uh, the, the spoiler, at the Easter egg at the end, then maybe they add up. I don't know. I just feel like you guys are being kind of hard on it when, I mean, honestly, it's, a, it's an interesting character and it's an entertaining movie. And I think it does some things different than some of the other MCU movies that, that I admire. And I think Kate Shortland is a really good director. Yeah, I could have easily given this three stars too, but I, I would say I, of the three of us, I'm the biggest uh, fan of the MCU. And so as I started to think about it and how it fits into the rest of everything that's going on in the massive Marvel story, it, it's it's the most useless movie that they've done. Or one of the most useless. It's like this and like Guardians right. Volume 2. Or Iron Man 2. Or Iron, Iron Man 3. Well, but Iron, Man, old... Iron Man 3 maybe. Iron Man 2 is the one that introduced Black Widow. I've heard that criticism too, Terry, but I feel like that's the only direction they can go now since the Avengers officially are done. What else can they do except for these side stories with the maybe secondary characters? I mean, that's why... Well, they're creating a new group, right? Well, yeah, that, that's the thing is is after this, we get Shang-Chi and then we get uh, the Eternals and we're and then we're getting more movies from the, guy, from the people that are going to still be around. Like we're getting another Spider-Man movie and we're getting another... Uh, another Thor movie and and things like things like that, but instead new Doctor Strange movie. But instead, to launch the whole thing, we're going to go back and tell a story that we that they're like we should have told the story earlier, but we didn't. So we're gonna start us moving on by refusing to move on. And that's that's kind of what I didn't like about it. And and the only moving on was was the two minutes at the end. Oh, Florence Pugh will be back. Okay, good to know. How else were they supposed to make this movie? 
she this character is dead. It had to five be five years ago. Back then, yeah, five that's years ago. That's how they were place. supposed to make this movie. Okay, but it is disorienting to not if you don't know like the set like the, that timeline, then you're going to be really confused because it doesn't make sense. You right. felt very reactionary to the fans because the fans were all like, "We need a Black Widow movie. We need a Black Widow movie," and they decided to finally do it too late after everyone freaked that she died in Endgame. And like, don't worry, you'll get your Black Widow movie. It's like, but it doesn't matter anymore. I don't know. I feel like that Bo Burnham inside song where he says, you know, you try to write some music. You try to entertain people. Come up with a better premise for Black Widow then, okay? I think this was as good as they could do for a character who died and wasn't always one of the main Avengers and has an interesting backstory that maybe wasn't fully fleshed out in this movie, but it was entertaining. And uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think you guys are being too hard on it. It was entertaining. It was yeah. entertaining. Look, I mean, basically every Marvel movie I have at two and a half or three stars. Like, this is no different than how I review all the other ones, except the shitty ones like Captain Marvel, you know, or Thor. <laughs> hey, I like Captain Marvel, too. No, I you didn't. I gave it thumbs up. <laughs> oh, of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think this is the fourth point. straight Marvel movie I've given thumbs up to, by the way. And I like WandaVision quite a bit, too. Uh, the first few episodes. Right, the first few episodes. Um, I don't know. I, and I don't... I've given a handful of See, Marvel movies thumbs down and I think it's getting more interesting with these side characters that maybe are not canonical necessarily and maybe it messes up the chronology but I'm just, I I was getting very sick of the Avengers. I I like the idea of these minor characters in the in this cinematic universe that maybe get more at screen time and attention even if it maybe messes up the verisimilitude of the chronology but who cares? Okay? Is I don't that care. one word verisimilitude is that a word? Yeah, that's a word. That's a very long word. You know, I it's was listening to word. one of our previous episodes. You guys called me out on you. You, saw, you said I was making up a word. The, the word subsumed. That's a real word. Stop calling out <laughs> my vocabulary, Ian. But you could have said consumed. No, I I was using it in the context. I I defend my usage of sub. Uh, all right. Well, one thing Adam had to work 16 hours that I don't know. We need some backstory there. That's so, the backstory. So, uh, we need to know. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm giving it two and a half. I don't know. It might move up to three at some point, but it's at two and a half for right now. And really quick, since I, I think, Zach, you finished WandaVision, right? Or did uh, you just stop? Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. We'll say okay. I finished it. So I, I'll, I'll say this. I, I haven't started Loki yet, which is currently being released but i have watched wandavision and falcon and the winter soldier and where wandavision starts out fascinating and then kind of tails off into something else at the end falcon and the winter soldier is kind of the other way around it starts kind of by the numbers and then gets a lot more interesting as it goes along well so, i'll tell you what's the most interesting of all is falcon and the snowman starring sean penn better than all those there you go there you go yes. okay well Timothy there's Hutton, black widow sorry. Uh, it'll be a, in, in a couple months. We'll review the next one. I think Shang Chi's the next one coming out, right, Todd? I don't know. In the Legend of the Ten Rings. Yeah, because Eternal comes out in like December, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll talk more MCU then. Uh, but uh, Todd, this, mo Todd this I... movie is not one in one one in one million. It's one in two million. Isn't that what he says? I I don't know, but I I love your Ray Winstone impression. It's very good. It's very good. Uh, Todd and I are giving it two Love and a half stars. Arnold. Zach gave it three stars. Uh, it, it's it's out in theaters or pay the 30 bucks to watch it on Disney Plus. 
Uh, I'm assuming all of Yikes. us went to the theater, right? Yes, and sold out once again, just like F9. <laughs> oh, I had almost no one in my theater. Almost, literally, it was it was almost barren. Although I will say that the theater that I was in had two showings at the same time. They yeah. probably opened another one up <laughs> because it was sold out. No, I, I think they were just anticipating it selling out. I don't. I don't think it sold out. I went yesterday afternoon and I was watching the showtimes a little bit and I went to a 1220 showtime and I almost went to an 1150. And if I went to 1150, there were only a handful of people that were going to, that were in that one, but the 1220 was on their big, huge, it's a regal. So they have their RPX theaters or like the seats rumble and everything. And that's what I saw it on. And the theater was about three quarters full. Wow. See, I saw it on an extra large screen as well, and there were maybe 10 people in the theater. This was the day it opened, too. Wow. Well, I saw it at like 9 p.m., and yeah, it was still full. It was one of yeah. the big screens, too. And they're thinking Black Widow, I mean, by the time this comes out, we'll know, but they're looking at it. It might crack $100 million at the box office, well, even the, with the All the theater restrictions are, are off now here. Like, uh, uh, this was the first weekend that they they didn't shut down seats on each side of you. Yeah, well, and e even with the at home option, I mean, it is a it is thirty bucks. But if you are taking more than two people to the theater, thirty bucks is cheaper. And uh, yeah, so so yeah, it. I'm glad the box office is opening up again. I'm glad movies are making money again. You kind of had a. I mean, Fast and Furious did well, but you kind of had a feeling it was going to take a Marvel movie to really to really crack the lid and 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 get it get us back a little more to normal so that's black widow time to move on into our spotlight segment where we are going to be talking a little bit more about the black widow scarlett johansson as we are going to do a mount rushmore of her work and um so we we each come up with one and then we have one consensus do we want to say that we have a consensus right now do we want to have or just have that conversation at the end i don't think we have a consensus okay and let's have the conversation at the case. end uh we're yeah. gonna go to zach first on this zach what is your submission for scarlett johansson's mount rushmore uh, this is really tough. I think Scarlett Johansson has gone through different phases in Hollywood. She's done movies that you would not expect her to do. She's done art house movies. She's done big budget movies. She's done Oscar contenders. She's done shit. Uh, it's it's really hard to pin her down. It's what makes her so versatile and so exciting. Um, I think I'm going to have to go with... Oh, geez. This is really tough. I, I, I have two that I, I'm really thinking about. Um, I think I'm going to go with Lost in Translation. Because even though that's a movie that in some ways gets overshadowed by Bill Murray, I think she's really great in that movie. I, she, in some people, you know, it's, it's, it's a veiled criticism to say, oh, she's just standing in for Sofia Coppola. But I don't think so. I think she's a really fleshed out and interesting character in that movie. And uh, I think she, is, I, I can't imagine that as an actor, it, it's very easy to show boredom. Um, but she does in that movie, boredom with her life, boredom with her uh, husband, boredom, I guess, with Tokyo and being in a foreign place and not knowing how to speak the language. And I think she's awesome in the movie. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, I don't know if it's her best work, but it's, you know, the, the work that really I was first introduced to her in 
along with Ghost World. And that's my favorite phase of Scarlett Johansson before the action hero phase. Good pick. Good pick. I, I felt like that could have been a consensus if we if we wanted it to be. Todd, you're next. Uh, so what I still think is her best acting is the Horse Whisperer. I mean, it, it's one That's of the best like child performances I've ever seen. And I just rewatched that movie in the last couple of years, and I mean, it, it still is a great movie. I mean, it's Robert Redford at the height of his game, not really doing something you would really expect him to do, but she is yeah, she was an amazing actress as a young child, and that was, I mean, that was the best thing she did in the 90s, for sure, but... Not Home Alone 3? Exactly. That's what I mean. <laughs> but, no, Horse Whisperer, what, I mean, I didn't see that until way after I saw a lot of her movies, but I mean, it, it's still, I, I was, I'm super impressed by that. Todd, have you seen Manny and Low, the movie she did before Horse Whisperer? No. That's a really good movie. I think that might have been in my top list or around my top list the year it came out. But she's awesome in that too as a little kid. But yeah, I would totally agree. I actually have seen The Horse Whisperer as well within the last, I would say, 18 months. And uh, the, the the love story between Kristen Scott Thomas and Robert Redford is a little iffy. Scarlett Johansson is the anchor in that movie and she's awesome. I totally agree with that pick. It gets <sighs> overlooked. Never seen The Horse Whisperer. It seems like something you would like. Yeah, they, you know, Bob probably needed to chop off about an hour of it, but it's still like a pretty decent movie, and it could be a contender for our power rankings later. I, I would say. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, so we've got we've got child actress. Has she done anything good in the last eighteen years, Terry? Yeah, she's done a lot. Um, Not according to this list so far. No. Well, I mean. It, it hmm. well, I, apparently, she's the best actress in the MCU, according to Zach. So, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I, a top three, top three. You said top two. So, we've 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 got child actor Scarlett, we've got we've got her her break her breakout role. Um, I mean, part of me wants to go with Black Widow just because it it shows I mean, there is definitely an action star. Um, phase to her career, and it's a character that was the monster hit. Yeah, Lucy is an is another one you could go with too. I also kind of want to go with one of her two films from 2019 that got her her Oscar nominations. Um, I kind of want to go with her also and her voice. Todd was going voice work. That's what I thought Todd was going to go with her or the perfect score. Honestly, that's where I thought he was going. But um, movie behind me (laughs) or the movie behind you. Yeah, Match Point, which is another great great performance from her. Or even uh, Don John. She's really good in Don John. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's another great accent. Oh, she she kills that accent in that movie. I'm going to go Marriage Story. That's my pick. Uh, I almost didn't want to because I felt like it was a little... It's a little too... Um, it's like the closest thing to Lost in Translation. Like, if the, her character from Lost in Translation, if we checked in on her, like, 15 years later, you could easily see it being her character in marriage story, but, um, it, it, it's one, it's probably her best performance. I'm going to say is, is what she does in, in that movie. So I'm going marriage story. So we've got lost in translation. We've got the horse whisperer. We have marriage story. I kind of, I kind of listed all the other options for a consensus pick. Yeah. The only other one I was considering that hasn't been mentioned was under the skin. 
I would also throw out Jojo Rabbit. I think she's really yeah. good in Jojo Rabbit in a role that may have been, again, not just mastering the accent, but also mastering someone who you would never think of also as Black Widow. I mean, she has a sort of like heft to her in that movie. She like sort of dominates the scene she's in, but it's not overacting and it feels very natural. Um, that was actually, I, I was really kind of torn between Lost in Translation and Jojo Rabbit, quite frankly. Yeah, uh, and uh, that's another great choice. I think my other, so uh, uh, maybe the most entertained I've been by her is from an SNL sketch she did back in 2009, where uh, it was an infomercial for porcelain fountains with uh, Fred Armisen, and she is she comes in and plays uh, plays his daughter, and and she's just I don't know if you guys have seen this, but she's just standing in front of a green screen with fountains behind her, and she goes, "You could buy this one." Or that one, or this one, or that. I and mean, it's it's really funny. If you haven't seen it, look it up. It's good. It's Has good. she ever done anything bad? I mean, even even in the like minor movies, like In Good Company, she's pretty good in that movie. She was also good yeah, in. So uh, you even Ghost said Road. in your in your pick that she's done a lot of shit. I can't actually think of that. I mean, she was in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. She's that's just not that movie. into you. I mean, that's pretty shit. Her, her Woody Allen movies are not great. Scoop is one of the worst movies ever. And she was in We Bought a Zoo, but you know. I, We'll go easy on Terry for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, even like like the the uh, did you guys ever see Rough Night? No, where no. where it's I like remember it coming out. I mean, she it's bachelorette party. I mean, it's it's kind of a crappy movie, but she's fun in it, and it shows a whole nother side of her that she doesn't do of, of a comedy side, like physical comedy that you don't see. So, I yeah. She's definitely at the Kate Winslet, like, 2006 point of her career. She's going to win an Oscar in the next five years. I mean, I would put a lot of my money on the Vegas Futures on that. But will it be better than the work that she's done the last 20 years? I think it's helpful that uh, she's not going to... uh... She's not going to have to stop every six months what she's doing to make another Marvel movie. Because it sounds like she's pretty much done with that now. You gotta remember, she she just got her first nominations, so she, this isn't like a long time coming that she would win an Oscar. I would say she's not going to win for another 15, 20 years. But I think a lot of people, a lot of people say she got snubbed back in 2003 for Lost in Translation. Like that, those should not have been her first two. Six or seven Golden Globe nominations and like two Oscar nominations now. I mean... We yep. should put money in the next five years. I would I I would I would put money on it. Next five years. 15 years? That seems that seems a bit lengthy. She's not Glenn She's Close. She's not old. She's like what? Was she like 37, 38, something like yeah. that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. She, she I mean, yeah, she turns she turns thirty seven really, in, in November. The factress really winners are either are either really are, are either like uh, at the end of their career or at the beginning of their career. There's no one that's in the prime of their career that really is winning Oscars. That's okay. That's debatable, but okay. I say we go with Under the Skin. I've never Terry, seen, seen Under, Under the Skin. skin? Oh, Terry nope. hasn't seen it. Okay. That's a great out-of-the-box movie that is... It, I can't think of a whole lot of other actresses who would have even done a project like that and killed it the way she killed it. I would I would go with her. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Okay. 
I think Rooney Mara is the best part of that movie, but okay. Scarlett's voice is what makes that movie click, though. And, and just and just the way that, that that whole thing was shot, too. Like, they had the entire movie made with Samantha Morton's voice in that role. And they, even, and, and they said, you know what, this voice isn't working. And they went back and put in her voice, and it is so seamless and yet so perfect for that. All right, are we going? Are we going? Her? I suppose. I like it. I, I mean, we could easily go JoJo as well. Uh, yeah. All right. So, Lost in Translation, The Horse Whisperer, Marriage Story, and Her. Definitely different phases of her career. That's true. It's very true. Very wide perspective. Okay. No cool. SpongeBob SquarePants movie though. Unfortunately. No, no SpongeBob SquarePants. Or, or Sing. I didn't mention Sing. She's the porcupine in Sing, and she's really good in that too. <clears throat> All right. Well, that was that. Now it's time to get into power rankings. You can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. Todd, you won. Of course. So, of course. What else is new? I almost quoted Forrest Gump again, but I decided not to. Because I did that last time. So, tell us what we're doing here. Okay, so yeah, Nicolas Cage has a movie called Pig coming out. I can't wait to see it. And so, <laughs> and plus we, just, we also reviewed a movie called Black Widow, which are both names of animals. So, I decided we are going to do movies that have an animal in the title of the movie. Which there are a lot when uh, actually putting this together. There are a, a there lot. Are a that lot. I, I love. And so, uh, this interesting to see if we have overlap or if we're trying to be different. I, I, I don't know. This might have been like one of the harder lists that we've ever done. Just because I, I didn't realize how many there were. And I was going through them like, oh, that'll be a fun one to do. That'll be a fun one to do. I'm like, oh, wait, but there's classics that have a animal in the title which made this really tough okay <clears throat> so movies with an animal in the title todd you're gonna go first on this all right so one thing i did i excluded movies that were in or considered for my top 100 because otherwise i would just pluck them off like my number one movie of all time is and uh, would qualify so i just decided not to not to include those movies i'll read those in the honorable mentions my number five is a movie I mentioned on our Best Picture follow-ups list uh, for Fred Zinnemann. It is The Day of the Jackal, and which it has stars Edward Fox as the titular hitman, the jackal. And the jackal is a type of dog or coyote, or it might even be a fox, which is weird because the actor's name is Fox. But I don't know. I never I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, it's one of the best action movies of all time. And the remake with Bruce Willis was terrible. But this is one of the coolest movies of the 70s. And it really doesn't get the type of reputation that it should. I, I love the movie, and it's unfortunately it's not really streaming anywhere, but it should be because it, it is it's just a really cool action hitman movie, The Day of the Jackal. Nice, nice. I haven't seen it. I have not right. seen, seen it either, but uh, I know that the sequel was featured in Ebert's book. I hated, hated, hated this movie. What was the sequel? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. The, I'm sorry. The remake. I'm my bad. Oh the, yes, the, the Jackal. Yes. Yes, that was a very bad movie. 
All right, I'm going to go next. Uh, so one thing I went through as I was going through this, I decided I was going to try and avoid movies just because I wanted to have more fun with this. I'm going to try and avoid movies that have been mentioned before in stuff like this. So I was going to try to avoid any movies that have been in my list a lot or recently or movies we've done deep dives of. So uh, I tried to avoid those to get some more variety in here. Um, so my number five is from 1988. And please don't say his name three times because he might appear. That is Beetlejuice. Oh, I thought it was uh, Candyman. I thought it was um, friend Roger Rabbit. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, yeah none of that matters if you say his name three times though (laughs) so yeah beetlejuice uh the classic tim burton movie uh starring alec baldwin gina davis michael keaton uh where you have this couple that is dead and they uh and they are kind of haunting this house michael keaton's involved it's just so much fun and you've got uh catherine o'hara in there as well and some and winona Ryder. it's it's classic tim burton and I, I haven't seen this movie in a really long time, but I'd love to go back and revisit it because it is it is a blast. It is a blast of a movie. And uh, and it it's Michael Keaton is like. He's kind of showing some of the craziness he showed when he was Bruce Wayne, but not really. He's more completely off the wall here, but uh, he shows he's a perfect Tim Burton actor as well. So Beetlejuice, that's my number five. I hadn't necessarily considered animals that are part of the word. Oh, that, that, yeah. Okay. I like it though. See, I, I avoided some, I avoided some of those. I I could have gone with, Oh, what were some of them here? There's one that I was like, this would have been really dog tooth or something. I would not have considered that. Right. Yep. But okay. The, the, the one that really would have been stretching that is if I'd gone with Bugsy. That, that would have really been been stretching. <laughs> Bug is not a type. It's a type of animal. It's not an animal. <laughs> yes, that would have been stretching it. Yes, it would have. Okay. Zach, number five. Well, my number five was going to be Fly Away Home, which is not about a fly, but a fly is in the title. Well, no, I mean, that, that works. because That works. Yeah. Oh, so can that be my number five? Yeah. I thought you guys were going to get pissed at that. Okay, well, that's definitely stretching it. However, I will say in my defense, it's a movie about animals. So... Maybe that gives me some good karma. I don't know. Anyway, Fly Away Home, uh, awesome movie, directed by Carol Ballard, 1996. I can't believe you guys went with it. Um, okay, I, I, I have to improvise a little bit. Uh, Anna Paquin, co- fresh coming off her Oscar uh, win, uh, plays this little girl. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, she, uh, her mom is killed in a car accident. So she has to go to Canada and live with her dad, Jeff Daniels who is this kind of quirky, strange, eccentric uh, environmental scientist who has these uh, basically machines. And then, oh, no, they're cutting down the trees. Oh, no, there's a there's a, a bunch of geese, baby geese, whose mom has been killed. And uh, Anna Paquin uh, basically becomes their surrogate human mother. And then they have to ha- tackle the challenge of flying south for the winter, which Jeff Daniels is intrepid enough to come up with uh, machinery. And they actually do fly away home. It sounds very corny, but it's actually a really good movie. One of my favorite movies as a kid, Carol Ballard was a really talented, is a talented director at uh, showing the relationships between humans and animals. He also made The Black Stallion. 
And I think that movie about the tiger, uh, leopard, maybe Zuma, Duma, something like that. Um, and I love Fly Away Home, a classic movie. Adam Daly gave this movie thumbs down, which is heartless. He also fell asleep during Black Widow. So not calling him out for anything, but uh, Adam, where where's your heart, man? This is this is a wonderful, be uh, beautiful movie about geese, not flies, but a fly is in the title. Nice, nice. I mean, it, it works. It works. I think what Todd was saying is, a fly is an animal, but but bug is just like a generic group of stuff. I think is what he was It'd trying be like to say. Like mammal or something, and that wouldn't be an animal. Have you guys seen Fly Away Home? No. Nope. Wow. Okay. I mean, you'd probably be very like cynical watching it today, but as a kid growing up, I remember seeing the theater and I thought it was really moving and sweet. And I actually own it on on uh, DVD, so that's uh, saying nice. something. Nice. Oscar nominated director. Now I was thinking, kept saying Carol Baskin, and I couldn't figure out the name of the director. <laughs> Carol Ballard. Yeah, Carol Ballard, not Carol Baskin. This is not about tigers. It's about it's about a different animal. <laughs> it is about a different animal, geese. All right, Todd, number four. Number four is from 2007, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Oh, Hello. that's a good one. Okay. Wow, I'd forgotten about that one. Uh, Great yeah, call, we'll, by the we'll way. We'll get there. We'll get there. Good call. Good call. All right, my number four uh, is a documentary that it came out in 2010 that I, I loved when it came out. And it's kind of become a little bit of a cliche now, but nothing beats... What it was catfish? like when it came out catfish yeah Ooh. uh super cool documentary and it's one of those where i love it when filmmakers start filming a documentary and then they fall they, they like fall into something and stumble upon something that becomes so much more than what they originally intended and that's what happens here you have a guy who has been dating someone online and they decide to chronicle their relationship online and then they decide they need to meet face to face and they chronicle the whole thing. And the reveal when it happens is just astounding. And the whole buildup to it, they do such a great job with this. And it's it because of this movie, it became a, a term in our vernacular. It's someone's been catfished. I mean, when when it happened to Manti Teo going into the Heisman ceremony, he was catfished. Because this movie was made about this whole thing of people pretending to be other people online to uh, to escape their their humdrum everyday lives, and it's uh, it's crazy. It, it, it's such a crazy movie, and like I said, it's a little cliched now. And but uh, looking back on it, but when that came out, my word, what a movie and what an experience! I, I went and found this in the theater somewhere so I could see it. Yeah, they did a great job promoting that. Like, I remember the trailer for it made it seem really sinister and mm -hmm. like mysterious. And once you learn the secret, don't spoil it. Funny story, though. Um, I had a friend uh, here in grad school in Kansas. And uh, we had we once had a, like a two-hour in-depth conversation about if Neve is gay or not. Because he's the only man I've ever seen with a tramp stamp. So that, that was a fascinating conversation. I may edit that out later. That's not funny. But it was, it was funny <laughs> at the time. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Be, uh, be proud, Neve. Either way. Zach, number four. 
Okay, uh, number four is a movie that was on my uh, top list of 2017. I don't know if either of you have seen it. Uh, it's disappointing if you haven't. It is from Australia and is called Hounds of Love, written and directed by Ben Young. And uh, this is basically an abduction movie. It is about a uh, pair of a husband and wife uh, who kidnap a young girl. Uh, the woman is played by Emma Booth and the, uh, the man is played by Stephen Curry. Not that Stephen Curry. Um, and uh, basically, it's uh, an abduction story um, is set in the outback. And, you know, the movie just kind of profiles this girl as she tries to use her uh, creativity, her ingenuity to escape this kind of abandoned house. The way she escapes, well, I shouldn't spoil it, but uh, her plan, shall we say, is super ingenious and really surprising in the movie. And uh, it's just a full throttled thriller. Like it's, you know, you, you, you kind of go into it expecting this sort of gruesome, almost exploitation type movie, which it feels like. But there's actually a lot of depth to it, too. It's all, And uh, the, the, the woman character, the Emma Booth character... Uh, what a great performance in that movie as she is someone who gradually starts realizing that as the abductor, she is participating in something that she does not always consent to, obviously. And she kind of gets sort of second thoughts about what she's doing along the way. So a uh, really solid movie from Australia. One of my favorite movies from 2017, Hounds of Love. A hound is an animal, right? Yeah, that works. That works. I actually came across this movie today. I, I was going to watch it and then I watched The Owls of Kahul instead. So. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice, nice. But no, I have not seen Hounds of Love, but it's been on my list since basically you told me about it like five years ago. How, how was the Owls of Gohul? I mean... Did it live up it, to the, the infamous it looks, trailer? It is a definite Zack Snyder movie, and no, it does not have <laughs> it does not have any rock music in it. Kings and Queens is in the movie? No. Oh, man. Not even in the credits, but uh, it, it definitely is a slow motion action Zack Snyder movie. For for better or for worse. Yes, mostly yeah. worse. Probably I don't know. It's not a terrible movie. It's I mean the animation is pretty cool. 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 All right. Todd number three. All right, my number three is more of a classic pick, but I've never had it on any of my list because I normally try to be unique in them. So my number three is Reservoir Dogs. Mm. Um because I mean I mean, I, I mentioned basically every other Tarantino movie, but this one, it, I mean, he starts out with a banger. I think it's a little overrated now because Tarantino is such a master, but it, I mean, it doesn't mean it still isn't like one of the most entertaining movies of the 90s and one of the craziest things I've ever watched. It's been a while since I watched it all the way through, but I saw clips of it the other day. I was like, okay, yeah, this thing, this thing still is awesome. And I mean, there's no reason for an animal to be in the title necessarily, but I mean, it qualifies because I didn't specify that there need to be animals. And but uh yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Those are like the best picks is when there's not an animal or there the animal has nothing to do with the actual movie. I, I, I feel like. And then how many movies did I come across like, ooh, that one's about an animal, but the animal is not in the title of the movie. Yeah, yeah. that happened a lot with my list. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs was almost on my list, and if I was being honest with myself, it would be on my list, but I feel like I just picked it for something fairly recently, so I uh, I left it off. Okay, number three on my list is one of those movies that I... It, it's like my favorite movie nobody else likes, and uh, and when I knew I could bring it up here, I was going to. It is from 2009. It is The Men Who Stare at Goats. Uh, this movie is just 
it, it is. And it's straight up bonkers. It's directed by Grant Hesloff, who is um, George Clooney's one of his production partners for a long time. And it had it's a crazy cast. Ewan McGregor, George Clooney, Kevin Spacey, Jeff Bridges. Uh, and and it's got that famous it's got a great poster of like the, the four of them lined up and then and goat is on the end. Anyways, it, it is uh it's a movie about this group of special forces army guys who um, trained to have paranormal powers and telepathy, and they would train by staring at goats and try to kill it with their mind. Uh, and <laughs> Jeff Bridges in, in as, as hippie dude ish as he possibly can. Like if you picture the dude in the army teaching people how to move stuff with their mind, that's his character here. George Clooney is the um, crazy person that's at the heart of this whole thing. And Ewan McGregor is the reporter that's trying, that has stumbled upon this story and is trying to see if it, if he's crazy or if this is actually a true thing. I, I haven't watched it in a long time. All I know is I loved this movie when it came out and nobody else did, which kind of makes me sad, but I, I need to go back and revisit it because the men who stare at goats, it, it's just fun. It, it it's, it's crazy and goofy and ridiculous and super, super entertaining. Yeah, that was never getting Merlot. <laughs> I know it wasn't. <laughs> Zach, did you ever see that one? I did not. Oh, I may need to assign this to him if uh, if I win. I feel like it's the same movie as Leatherheads. The very different movies. <laughs> okay, well, but in the sense that they were like funny, but not really, and people didn't like them, but Terry did. Apparently, apparently. Have, did you ever see Leatherheads? No. Oh. Exactly. That's that's even John Krasinski. But there's no right. animal in the title. There is no animal in the title. They're animals in qualified because of leather. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) We're getting kind of gruesome here. We are. We are. All right, Zach, number three. All right. uh, For my number three, we're going to go with uh, one of my all time favorite comedies. One of the few comedies that had success at the Oscars and one of the few comedic, truly comedic performances that won an Oscar. And that is Kevin Klein in 1988 for a fish called Wanda. Uh, Awesome movie, hilarious movie that holds up pretty well. I've watched it within the last 12 months. It is about a, a group of um, jewel thieves, American jewel thieves. Actually, it's sort of a uh, American and British jewel thieves um, who try to get these uh, the location of these diamonds. Uh, and uh, to do that, uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis character uh, basically tries to seduce John Cleese, who is this kind of you know very formal barrister. And uh, she's working with um, Kevin Klein's character named Otto. Now, Otto has this big thing in the movie that he doesn't like to be called stupid, which leads to so many great monologues. One of my favorite lines in that movie is, oh, Otto, you're so stupid. You think the London Underground was a political movement. Um, and uh, there's also just some great montage. Yeah, he uh, Otto would be rooting for uh, Italy in the Euro Cup. He has a thing about... Um, Italy and doing an Italian accent during his lovemaking sessions which so uh, A Fish Called Wanda directed by the 77 year old Charles Crichton at the time talked about older directors uh, a few weeks ago he's definitely one of them and this is a really really uh, hilarious movie that holds up pretty well fans of Monty Python of course will love it but even if you're not a fan of Monty Python it's, it's a classic at this point that almost made my list it almost did 
Yes. And, and it, I, think it, it's it's funny. A, I think it's the best Kevin Klein ever was, too. It's funny, even in spite of the multiple animal deaths in the movie. I mean, you can't make a movie now about features. I mean, unless it's Cruella, you know, who doesn't really skin dogs. But, uh, you know, uh, this movie features several animal deaths and uh, several dog deaths, too. And yet it's still very funny. So I don't know if it would be hashtag canceled today, but uh, maybe that part doesn't hold up well. But it's still pretty hilarious if you actually watch it. All right, Todd, number two. My number two is Amoris Peros. And ah. that's the first list that's ever shown up on for me. But, I mean, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yartu's debut film, which I still think is the best thing he ever did. I mean, even though he's won two Oscars since. Sort of this interlocking story drama, which he and Guillermo Arriaga have done several times, but this is the best one. It's super bleak and disturbing. But I don't... Okay, Peros is yeah. dog in Spanish. But the title somehow translates to Love's a Bitch. But I'm not really sure why, because that's not a feminine form of dog. I'd be Peros, but I don't I think it counts either way because I think either way it's a dog. But yeah, Morris Peros is a great movie. Terry reviewed it not that long ago, I think. And uh yeah. It was one of my anniversary watches last year. Yes, there we go. Yeah, and I yeah, I, I love the movie and I I can't think of another time I'd mention it on a power on a power rankings. Good call. Yes. There's several dogs in that movie. In fact, when there's one dog who lives beneath the floor, if I remember correctly, and they have to fish it out. I don't. I don't think that's ever happened to me before. But <laughs> I was can the dog they had to fish out called Wanda? Oh, oh, quite possibly. Yeah, nah, nah. Out of point. All right. Well, uh, I'm next here. My number two is uh, is the one that Todd gets to talk about as well. It's the Diving Bell, the Butterfly. Uh, this is such a quiet and subtle and beautiful film, which obviously it's going to be because it's directed by Julian Schnabel. And it uh, stars Matthew Amalric, who is uh, a man who has suffered a stroke and his entire body is paralyzed except for one eye. And it kind of tells a story of his life leading up to what happened, but then also shows how he has uh, how he has learned to communicate with his nurses using his one eye. And he writes an entire book using that one eye. It and that's the, that's the movie, and it is incredible, and it is breathtaking, and it is amazing. And again, it's it, it's a common theme with the movies on this list. It's been a while since I've seen it. But I, I own it. I should go back and watch it. Uh, Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Todd, I know you said it was on your list, too. Yeah, I mean, I haven't watched it since the theater, but it's one of those that left enough of an impact on me that I kind of remember the details and the experience of watching it. And I don't necessarily need to watch it again, even though I would, because and it really is a masterpiece technical achievement. And so much imagination had to go into the actual filming of that. It's one of the best directing jobs, the most impressive and innovative directing jobs I've ever seen. And yeah, just like obviously a great story. Yeah, that year it got a it got a lone directing nomination. That was the only thing it was nominated for, right? No, it was nominated for like four Oscars. Oh, there we are. I'm actually staring at the IMDb page, so I should just look over and see. Yeah, it, it was, was nominated, nominated for, for foreign film for some reason. Director, adapted screenplay, cinematography, and editing. But he, I, I know he won. He won director at that infamous Golden Globe press conference during the writer's strike. Right. So, what was France's submission for the Oscars? Question. Like Persepolis or something? 
Uh, no, I think that that was something else. I'll I'll investigate. Uh, Zach, obviously a great movie. I read the book in high school, like three or four years before the movie came out, and love the book. And I couldn't. I think I mentioned this, but I I was reminded of the diving bell and the butterfly watching the father in terms of just how immersive both mm. movies are and how it puts you in that sort of first person perspective uh, that's really unshakable and it's kind of disturbing. Um, okay, number two on my, that's a great call, of course, obviously. Uh, number two on my list is a film uh, that I don't think either of you have seen. It is uh, a foreign language film from the Middle East. I think it's sort of confusing what countries it's from, but I want to say Iraq or Syria. I'm not quite sure. Um, it is a film called Turtles Can Fly from 2004, directed by Baman Gobadi. And it tells the story right in the midst of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, this group of um, Kurd Kurdish kids who basically spend their time um, in minefields, uh, hoping to kind of, you know, obviously get away from the mines, but also uh, play and have fun. Uh, so naturally, you see a lot of these kids with um, some major deformities. You have one kid who is missing um, an entire leg. You have other kids who are missing other, like, arms and stuff. Um, it's pretty tragic. And then we we see this girl um, in, in the story. Well, the main character's name is Satellite. He's this very charismatic kid. But then we also see this girl with what we assume to be her younger sibling, who's a baby that she has to take care of later. We kind of learn the more sordid details of that relationship. Uh, you know, sometimes um, I like to watch movies that emotionally destroy me. This is absolutely one of them. I think most audiences probably couldn't handle this movie because it is just so freaking depressing. If we ever did a top most depressing movies power ranking, this would absolutely be in contention. But in a weird way, it's also kind of uplifting seeing these kids survive in such horrible conditions. Um, it's a beautiful movie, one of the most underrated movies of the 2000s. I don't know. I actually own it on DVD. I brought the DVD with me because I thought I might forget to bring it up. Um, I haven't seen it in a while, but remember seeing it in high school. It impacted me so much that I even told uh, my social studies teacher about it. I And uh, I was I'm a huge fan of this movie uh, in college as well. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's not for the weak-willed, but it's a really powerful, um, beautiful movie. Have either of you seen or heard of it? I've nope. heard of it because you've mentioned it before, but I just looked up. It's not really streaming anywhere. But yeah, it's been it's been on the long list of movies I've wanted to watch for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you, you think you know, poor, poor impoverished kids in a war torn area. You think, okay, well, that's kind of you know low hanging fruit. But the movie is really interesting in the way that it surprises you and uh, really startles you. And uh, I think it's it's just an awesome movie. I don't know if the director has done gone on to do a whole lot else, but. Uh, but in terms of movies from the Middle East that depict the U.S. invasion in that time period, uh, this is maybe the best film. All right. All right. And there's no turtles in it. I was thinking you're going to go with the Red Turtle, your number one animated movie of the 2010s. But I maybe completely forgot about that film. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, it was Persepolis. Oh, I, I, I saw that too. It was Persepolis uh, that got Fren the French uh, uh, submission. It wasn't even shortlisted, even though it was nominated for animated film. Yeah, they screwed that up. <laughs> yep. All right. Todd, number one. My number one, I mentioned on one of their lists, it was on the unexpected performances of the 2010s for Mila Kunis, and that's Black Swan. Mm. 
and uh, which I think is a fantastic movie and just a crazy success story because it's not re- necessarily Aronofsky's best movie, but it made like $300 million at the box office. And it's a weird, dark thriller about a ballet dancer. And it's as big as Oscar hit as well. Like, I, I mean, I remember seeing that trailer a ton between like 2009 and 2010. And it somehow lived up to the hype because that thing was a crazy trailer. And I don't know how else this movie would have made like a hundred million at the domestic box office being an indie movie about a ballet dancer. And, and, but it, it, it I don't know. It, it's an incredible movie. And I, I adore Aronofsky, even though he doesn't bat a thousand, he's had a couple of bad movies, but like I did a term project on Aronofsky that year before this movie came out. And that would have been a really interesting chapter to add to the end of that paper. Uh, because I mean, it's hard to fathom how it was such a monster hit, or even just because the trailer was killer and it had, Natalie Portman, but I don't know that she was really a box office draw at the time. It's a great movie. Black Swan. Yeah, I I almost had that as my number one, but I decided not to since it was in my top five of the decade, so I just talked about it fairly recently. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of that movie and just just a, yeah, just bonkers. Bonkers movie and all the different mind-bending that goes on there and just psychological thriller stuff it's just great cool okay number one on my list i had to go a little classic here um and i've mentioned this one before but i think it's been a while so i'm going to kill a mockingbird as my number one uh like i said hardcore classic movie uh gregory peck at his finest and and some great kid performances in this movie too uh but yeah, I, I love this movie and uh, and the story of of To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, our our son's name is Atticus because of Atticus Finch, and uh, and it was one that we saw. And it's like, oh, it's I, I love movies. My wife is big into books. It's like it's a literary character and a movie character, and like one of the most virtuous characters of all time in either. And so it, it's. It was it's great. I always loved his performance in that, um, and I think I I always said that the Oscars got it right that year by giving him the Oscar, but giving Lawrence of Arabia the uh, the best picture because I think Lawrence of Arabia is a better movie, but I think Gregory Peck's performance is better um, than Peter O'Toole's. But anyways, yeah, my number one to kill a mockingbird. I mean, hard to argue with, right? Exactly. It's a controversial choice, though. Here, like at our high school, we do we no longer teach to kill a mockingbird uh, mm. be, because there's I think there's just too much too many complicated racial dynamics to it, and I think the they they want to try to um, promote more diverse diverse authors, not just necessarily white authors. But uh, I still think the movie's pretty strong, and uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, I, it's a classy pick. That's interesting because I mean, it, it's one of the biggest biggest hits from a female author too so hmm. interesting interesting and i'm sure ghost set a watchman didn't help help the uh, racial dynamics of uh, of the book to kill a mockingbird but right all right number one zach well i was confident i'm number one until i realized i completely forgot the red turtle Jeez, thanks, Todd. I mean, I guess it's my fault. I even had a movie with the word turtle in the title and I couldn't make the connection. That's the only reason I even remembered it. Oh, it was on my short list. 
Oh, well, I feel really stupid. Although I do feel, I, I like my list overall, but obviously had I remembered the Red Turtle, it would make an appearance in my top five. I still stand by that as one of the best movies of the decade and one, the, definitely the best animated movie of the decade. But uh, alas, I, I'm getting old. In my old age, I can't remember this kind of shit. Uh, my number one movie, though, is uh, I'm sure will come as no surprise to Todd. It is Gus Van Sant's excellent movie, Elephant. Uh, it's kind of interesting that Todd brings up uh, Black Swan because like Todd, um, I saw the trailer for Elephant and uh, was really intrigued by it. And uh, the movie lived up to the hype because I thought the, tra the trailer to it is actually really excellent. It really builds suspense and it kind of freaks you out. Um, and Elephant is the story, if you are not familiar with it, uh, the Gus Van Sant directed film. It's about as indie as it gets. Uh, it feels like it was made for about $15 with a lot of non-professional actors shot at the uh, school, not uh, eight blocks away from where Terry and I went to college. Uh, and uh, it tells the story of one day in the lives of these teenagers as a school shooting happens. And uh, you get uh, perspectives of the victims, uh, the perpetrators. You don't really know who lives, who dies. If there's heroes in it, who tells your story? I'm sorry, I had to do that. Uh, and it is a uh, really disturbing movie, not so much for the violence in it, but uh, for the kind of unanswered questions and the sort of existential tone of it. The shots are, you know, just long tracking shots. And it, of course, is part of uh, Van Sant's death trilogy with Jerry and uh, the one he made about Kirk last, last Days, which I, I don't think either of those movies are quite as good as Elephant. Um, it's a movie that always stuck with me. Quietly, I think it's a really good movie about being in high school. You can almost take out the school shooting part of it and and just see how horrible it is to be a teenager in high school. I really feel bad for those kids. It's funny to also look on the IMDb. Some of those kids, like, try, uh, you know, made, they actually made some movies after this movie. Elias, for example, who's a photographer kid in that in uh, Elephant, uh, was in the, I believe, in the Gus Van Sant segment in Paris Jatem. And I think one of them was in uh, an Avengers movie or something like that, or Transformers, excuse me. Um, but sadly, none of them, none of them I, I, I'm not too familiar with anymore. But it is a classic movie, a top 100 movie for me all time. And uh, uh, obviously, uh, the, the, the word elephant um, can mean anything you want it to mean after watching that movie. So I, it's, uh, what I love about it, too, the title is perfect. Perfectly ambiguous. Good call. Good call. Do you, know that Diane, do you know that Diane Keaton was a producer on that movie? And I remember oh. uh, watching a Charlie Rose episode where she, and it might have been Gus Van Sant, or maybe it was another producer, talked uh, extensively about the film. And Diane Keaton, who sometimes can be you know, drinking wine on Ellen, was like really articulate and dead on about the filmmaking process. So uh, kudos to her for producing it and seeing the, the, uh, you know, how, the potential of that movie. Because I'm sure selling it to studios, you know, non-professional kids during a school shooting uh, not exactly the most appetizing box office material. And you're right. It, it was the best of the death trilogy. I'll, I'll agree with you there. They did not have to I climb like up a, tall, a big rock, though. I mean, they overcame a lot of obstacles in Elephant, <laughs> but they didn't. And they didn't talk about video games for 10 minutes. I, I do think we can agree that Last Days is the worst of the three. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a five minute shot of a bush. I, that, that's that's all I remember about last days. And and at the end of that, at the end of the shot of like this, this random tree bush thing, that's a Kurt Cobain walks by like that. That is I remember that was like the funniest scene in a movie I'd seen like in months because I was they were we were staring at a bush. 
I just remember Michael Pitt rocking out for like a 10 minute unbroken, uninterrupted shot with the cameras gradually pulling back. It's like Van Sant was trying to channel Antonioni or something. It just, it didn't work. The other two movies, it worked so well because, I don't know, maybe you understood the characters a little better. Maybe it was building. Actually, I think the real thing is those, the first two movies built suspense, whereas Last Days, what, he's just going to off himself? Like, that's not, I don't think it's that suspenseful. Watch Oslo August 31st if you're more into that. All right. Honorable mentions, Todd? Yeah, so the ones that would have been considered if I was considering my top 100 would have been, obviously, The Deer Hunter, Raging Bull, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, The Silence of the Lambs, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Lion in Winter, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Horse Thief. And the other ones I had written down that I considered were Elephant, The Elephant Man, 12 Monkeys, Wag the Dog, The Lion King, Groundhog Day, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Where Eagles Dare, to Kill a Mockingbird and the Snake Pit. You've seen Where Eagles Dare? Yeah. <laughs> what does that surprise you? I don't know. It's just I I'm only familiar with the music from that movie because I used to own a CD called Cinema Century that had uh, music from all different uh, movies and it had the track from Where Eagles Dare randomly. So apparently that is well-known music for some reason. I can't remember the music from it. Yeah, me neither. All right. Well, I wrote down I wrote down a whole bunch of them, but here are the ones that I that I landed on as my honorable mentions: uh, Foxcatcher, uh, Birdman, Red Dragon, Silence of the Lambs. Obviously, would have made my list if we hadn't just done a deep dragon. Dragons, animals. <laughs> I think okay. so. I think so. Okay. A uh, fish called Wanda, Reservoir Dogs, Jojo Rabbit, which we talked about a little bit just a little bit ago. Wolfwalkers, Lady Bird, and Black Swan. And then the ones that I thought about putting on my list, but I thought were stretching the the rules a little too much. Uh, Beasts of No Nation. Uh, a beast, I, I don't know. It's a gray area. Nocturnal Animals. I mean, it has animal in the title, but that's not an animal. Yeah, and, then, and then the Fisher King. Because mm. it's Fisher <laughs> King. I... I, I, I that, that's stretching a little too much, much more than Beetlejuice. So I, I, I left it off. Back. Um, I had They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Mickey and the Bear, Dog Day Afternoon, Anchien Andalou, which is the one where the guy cuts the, the eye out, Rabbit Proof Fence, First Cow, Chicken Run. Now, Chicken ah. Run is a good movie. You should show your kids that, Terry. I bet they would be highly entertained by it. Um, the Pelican Brief, which actually isn't a good movie. I just thought, you know, the name Pelican. Um, Enter the Dragon, 12 Monkeys, Jojo Rabbit. And I did actually write down The Horse Whisperer, even though, as I said earlier, I'm not a huge fan of the romantic component in that movie. But like uh, like the uh, uh, Fly Away Home, uh, great movie at showing uh, human-creature uh, uh, relationships. I believe the horse's name in that movie is Pilgrim. Just Sounds right. Trivia. Yeah. Throwing that out there. John Wayne should have been in that movie. He could have been talking to his horse. Okay, Pilgrim. I, I don't know. <laughs> I he had a horse named Pilgrim. Yeah, so I mean, it, <laughs> if, that, if that movie had been made in 1969, it would have starred John Wayne and Natalie Wood. So. Oh, well. there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, let's do a quick rundown of what we uh, of what our lists are before we get to our next part. Todd, five to one. Number five, the Day of the Jackal. Number four, the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Number three, Reservoir Dogs. Two is Amoris Peros, and number one is Black Swan. 
All right. And for me, number five, Beetlejuice. Number four, Catfish. Number three, The Men Who Stare at Goats. Number two, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Number one, To Kill a Mockingbird. Zach. Uh, number five, Fly Away Home. Number four, Hounds of Love. Number three, A Fish Called Wanda. Number two, Turtles Can Fly. And number one, Elephant. All right. Now to Adam's list. Let's see if we can do this. I mean, we might be able to. Todd and I did have an overlap there. I thought there was no way there was going to be any overlap on these li- on yeah, this list. I, I was, yeah, I was surprised about that too. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny because Diving Bell and the Butterfly was the one, like the whole time, the one I knew was going to be on my list. Anyways, all right. I Todd. have two foreign movies on my list. I really didn't think there was going to be overlap. <laughs> all right. So Adam's list is going to be number five, The Peanut Butter Falcon. Number four, Batman, The Killing Joke. Number three, the Wolf of Wall Street, number two, The Silence of the Lambs, and number one, The Fly from 1958. Ooh, okay. I like how you had animated Batman on there. It's good. It's good. All right. Okay. I have I have number five, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, number had four, that last week. I don't think he's doing that again. I don't know. I don't know. Number four, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, it says the same animal twice. Uh, number three, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Number two, The Deer Hunter. Number one, The Lion King. This is so frustrating. <laughs> Todd's going to win it. Oh, I know. The peanut butter falcon's totally going to be on that list. <laughs> number five, Lady Bird. Number four, Red Dragon. Number three, Dances with Wolves. Number two, Deer Hunter. Number one, Reservoir Dogs. All right. Here we go. Down the center. I went for the win here, but Zach might get it on the... Getting like one or two. Yeah. I was going to do that. I didn't. Gosh, dang it. All right. He starts off by saying this ranking was rough. Like a dog. Like a dog. R-U-F-F rough. Okay. Honorable mentions. He's got Dances with Wolves. Zombievers. Uh, the Human Centipede. Foxcatcher. Nice. Ratatouille. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Alpha Dog. And Big Bad Wolves. Oh, man, I forgot about that one. Number five is Fantastic Mr. Fox, which he, like, just watched. I just put it on the website. He put it in his top ten of that year, and I forgot about it. Number four, The Fly. He says both 1950. He says <laughs> it said both 1958 and 1986. Okay. Number three, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I was going to do that. I did that for the ones with a one in the title. And I, I put it, in, and I knew that was going to be on his list. Damn it. Number two, Reservoir Dogs. And number one, Silence of the Lambs. I win. <laughs> That's two. <laughs> this I is mean, getting ridiculous. You guys need to step up your game. Why, why do we even try anymore? <laughs> I thought I had a good list. Where did you have Silence of the Lambs? I had it too. Oh. And I had the I had a, and another one. I had the fly on his list. Yeah, he had two. You had one. I had none. Well, I had an honorable mention. Two honorable mentions? No, he never mentioned Crouching Tiger. Or the Lion King. How do you not mention the Lion King? I know. That, I thought that was weird. Hey, no animation, I guess. And no, and, Yeah, no animation, no superheroes. Like, I thought for sure he was going to have a Batman or a Spider-Man. Or Ant, Ant-Man and the Wasp or something. Yeah. Or the Ten Commandments. <laughs> that's me getting uh, my 32 and a half win Zach is still at 22 Carrie's still at 17 
You're almost doubling me up, Todd. I know. You got like a year of straight wins before you catch up. <laughs> yep. Yep. Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Let's get into our trivia segment and talk about the movies that Zach and I had to watch. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to go first on this one. Because, uh, yeah, I had to watch. Got to watch. I got to watch. This was a fun watch, actually. I watched It Follows. From, I think it was, eventually it was 2015. It made a bunch of festival runs in 2014. Super low-budget horror film, written and directed by David Robert Mitchell, uh, about uh, a girl who has a sexual encounter with her boyfriend, or who she thought was her boyfriend, and it turns out he was just passing along the curse of this ghostly supernatural figure who walks very slowly, but is smart, uh, after you and tries to kill you. And he that that uh, being is going to try to kill you until you pass it on and have sex with somebody else, and then they'll try and kill them. But if that person dies, then it just backs up a co- however many levels on on the list. Uh, this movie, yeah, it's super low budget, but it it also is is very well done. Like it feels real, not like in a Blair Witch real, but it it feels. It feels like like it could be any street in America and any home in America and any any group of people in America that this could be happening to. Um, I, I really I really enjoyed it. I really got into it. I, I kept on watching it and it's easy to watch a movie like this and to just kind of poke fun at it. It's like, oh, oh, this is going to happen. And like. That didn't happen. Huh. Uh, there's not really any jump scares in it, which is interesting but it's also terrifying at the same time it's like you've got to avoid one zombie that's really what's going on here but it's it's one that you don't that nobody else can see which is also fascinating uh they do so much in the background of just you things that are happening and you don't even notice it right away and then you're like wait a second you got to back it up a little bit it's like that's that that, there's they're walking in the background um, the most terrifying moment, though, is is when she's in her room and there's and the girl's like knocking and she opens the door and there's that like seven foot thing that comes walking in right behind her. Holy cow, that is just that was just like that gave me chills all the way up my spine at that moment. Uh, yeah, the, this is this is a fun movie. I'm giving it I'm giving it three and a half stars. It, it, it's a good one. I'm not a big horror person, but this was a lot of fun. And I know it came up a couple weeks ago and I forgot why it came up until the swimming pool scene sh- yeah. comes up. And uh, yeah, that that's a pretty crazy, crazy scene. And it's I a great love idea, how- even though it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I love the final shot. The final shot was awesome. Was awesome because you don't know what's going on, and and there's probably never going to be a sequel to this, which is the way it should be. And uh, it, it's it's just great. It, it's a great standalone. I love open ended endings, and um, and yeah, my my wife said she watched it with me, and she said I, she was thinking about it later, and she was like, you know what, the best part of that ending is uh, he is her constant insurance policy. 
Like she will always know if 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 something's going to be coming because he will always be by her side. Yeah. Like that that's that's smart. That's smart. Yeah, that that movie freaked me out when I watched it cuz I mean, there's something about the them moving so slow that makes it worse because if they were like bolting at you like at a full sprint or something like that, you'd be able to hear it in some way. But the fact that they just like linger behind you and slowly creep up on you and no one else can see it, it's, I mean, it's horrifying. And yeah, I mean, I know th- there was a lot of things like what is the movie actually about? It's about like rape culture. It's about like STDs and stuff like that. I mean, you could read into it however you want, but, like passing something on and all that. But I mean, it's the the movie by itself, just as a just as a standalone horror movie is one of the most intense things I've ever seen. So I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Zach, you've seen that one? I have. I saw it in theater. I've seen it a few times. Um, so this same friend that I had a conversation with about Catfish, we also talked about this movie, and we determined that the way to solve it would either be an aircraft or a spacecraft. Maybe pull a Tyrese and Ludacris go into space and just kind of <laughs> leave that person there. Yeah. That's how you I fix mean, the problem. That, that That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea. There are a lot of solutions. Desert Island could work. <laughs> well, but, but I mean, you don't know if it, if he can like, if the thing can like walk through the water, like walk along the ocean floor. The and problem get is the death thing. The fact that you die, it goes to the previous person. So you need the person to live. Right. Well, oh, and, and and I, I it's, think it's an ingeniously plotted movie. I mean, like I never found a flaw in how that was set up. Like I couldn't ever think like, no, I mean, there's a way to solve this. I never thought that. Well, I, like, cause you get the idea, the guys on the boat, right? Like they, that happened and they and then it came after her again or or the the lady on the street corner i mean there there are several moments where like okay that they found something that worked and nope nope <laughs> if is that is it the most a24 non a24 movie ever made it has to be <laughs> this a24 before a24 was a thing david robert mitchell could have founded a24 yeah, and I'm looking. I I haven't seen any of his other movies, but Todd, I know you're a big fan of the Myth of the American Sleepover, right? Yeah, and the what was the Under the Silver Lake was the yeah. other one, and that yeah, that thing was weird. That was like some inherent vice shit. I mean, but I mean, he 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 does his own thing, and I I really can't wait to see what he does next. Awesome. Probably Marvel movie. That would not surprise me. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that that's what Marvel does right now is they they take these super indie guys and. Or girls and and uh, give them a budget and say go have some fun. All right, Zach. Fun, fun is a loose word. Um, okay, you got so to go into the cager. I did. Uh, I was assigned Snake Eyes from not the new GI Joe movie, which hasn't come out yet. <laughs> Although I'm dying to see that too. Can't wait. Um, but uh, Snake Eyes from 1998, directed by Brian De Palma, starring the one and only Nicolas Cage. Um, it is interesting. Uh, Nicholas Cage only utters the F word once in this movie, uh, which is amazing. Uh, I didn't know that until after the movie. Although um, he mouths it a few times. Like the thing is rated R for some violence. Yeah. It was clear that they dubbed out the swear words and they still got an R rating anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the plot of this movie, uh, gosh, how can you describe it? Nicholas Cage is a police detective, I think, in Atlantic City who shows up for the night of the big fight. And uh, in an opening tracking shot that lasts 20 minutes, probably the inspiration for Birdman or Victoria or whatever, uh, he goes to the fight, meets up with his old pal, Lieutenant Dan, and uh, they watch the bout. And then uh, the Secretary of Defense sitting behind them is assassinated. And uh, Nicolas Cage, you know, he goes into the movie kind of doing uh, the deadfall Nicolas Cage with the with the jacket and the chest hair and the jewels. But then he like he cleans up really quickly. Right. He is like on the scene. He's like, oh, shit, this was assassination. I'm the police detective. I got to take over this shit. And basically, he kind of turns into a mixture of like Clint Eastwood and Daniel Craig in Knives Out, minus the Southern accent. Although that would have been an interesting touch for this role as well. Um, Todd picked the right day for me to watch this movie. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I, didn't it pick the, I didn't pick the day. You did. <laughs> well, okay. Whatever. For, I was in the mood for it. I, any other day, maybe not. I kind of love this movie. It is a spectacular mess of a movie yes uh it is i wrote down some of its cinematic influences um dress to kill uh obviously because brian de palma uh lady in the lake rashomon and even though it was made before this movie i do feel like spiritually this movie is inspired by vantage point because there are scenes when he goes back and says rewind that uh with the apparently thousands of camera angles that they got on uh the fight in spite of all that, he's still not able to solve the mystery. There's another scene where um, there's the fighter, the boxer in this movie. Both boxers look like they're about 50 years old. Dipper. I mean, like I said that last week, that was Dipper, the main it, boxer. That, that was Dipper? Yeah, I said that wow. last week. <laughs> okay, that's mind-blowing. Well, it makes sense because he looks about 60 in this movie. Really out of shape. It's like, the, I mean, you don't know. What is Brian De Palma smoking? That's all. I Like, you couldn't just cast... I, you know, I don't know. But anyway, um, there's a scene where uh, it, the, one of the big reveals is that he threw the fight and it is so obvious his horrible like acting at the, the, the fist didn't even land on the face. And yet the movie makes this huge point about that's a major revelation. I also love I said Lady in the Lake. This is a movie that uses subjective camera quite liberally. Uh, there's uh, some hilarious sequences where you actually the camera becomes the person who's walking. <laughs> Like there's a there's a scene where you're Gary Sinise and then you're checking out the rack of the lady who distracted you. There's another scene where you're the boxer and you actually see the boxing gloves on the side. It's like a first person shooter. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, this movie has oh I, did, I forgot to mention this also takes place during a, uh, a hurricane that is hitting uh, the uh, Atlantic City region. If because you don't why not? Think if you don't think that plays a factor in how this movie uh, ultimately uh, culminates, then you haven't seen any movies and you don't know anything about movies. Uh, oh boy, I kind of love this movie. I, I love uh, the, the way it resolves itself. I love that this is about some sort of um, nuclear defense program. I don't know why they had to assassinate this guy. It seems like a pretty excessive way to get their missile program uh, adopted by the government. Can't Isn't there a simpler way of doing that instead of assassinating a member of the president's cabinet? Uh, who knows? I also read a few interesting things on the trivia page. One is that um, there's an actor in this movie named Kevin Dunn. But there's also a character named Kevin Dunn. They're different. Yeah. And the real Kevin Dunn, apparently, it's a Gary Sinise character's name is Kevin Dunn. He got a, a VIP hotel room because he said he was Kevin Dunn, but they apparently that hotel room was meant for Gary Sinise. I mean, you gotta love it. You, you can't make <laughs> shit like that up. That's just awesome. 
Um, also, Michael Rispoli is in the movie. You might know him from, uh, he played Jackie April on The Sopranos. And what I love about Michael Rispoli is that if you look at his IMDb credits, uh, every role uh, he, that he's known for, he plays a character named Joe. Uh, Big Joe in Kick-Ass, Joe Jr. in While You Were Sleeping, Joey T in Summer of Sam, et cetera, et cetera. In this movie, unfortunately, he does not play Joe, he plays Jimmy. Um, I love the song at the end of this movie. I actually, I, I listened to it on YouTube. Uh, it's a song called Sin City. I had it stuck in my head. It is just like jamming in that late 90s beat that you just can't replicate. I loved it. Bravo. Bravissimo. A great pick, Todd. A solid three-star <laughs> movie. I, 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 this is the most fun I've had in the movies in a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen this movie quite a bit. I, I mean, I, it's been a bit since I watched it, but I remember there's, like, at the end of that break, uh, Unbroken Shot, Nick Cage is like, I am the king! Oh, yeah. And then, then like, the ding happens. It's like, I, I can't believe that never happened in a Cage movie before where he said that, like... <laughs> Yeah, but, I mean, obviously, I mean, it's got Carla Gugino. I mean, that that's my girl. I mean, that was probably the original. No nudity, I watched the movie. Kind of that's surprising, true. but because this was a PG thirteen movie. For, for for some... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they screwed that up. They're just like, yeah, screw it. We'll keep the blood on her for that one scene. Yeah, I also like that his name in this movie is Rick Santoro because that sounds like Rick Santorum, the asshole senator from Pennsylvania. So every time I kept hearing it, I th you know I kept thinking, oh, you, you know, Rick Santorum's in this movie. He wants to criminalize abortion, blah blah blah. Um, but uh, it's it's a classic. I mean, you really can't go wrong. I also love his cell phone in the movie, which is total like mid nineties, massive cell phone. And he's just like talking to people during the fight. He's talking to his, his wife and his mistress. My wife came in this movie. He's like, this is like Nick Cage channeling uncut gems. I'm like, damn, you're right. I mean, there's <laughs> definitely some uncut gems vibe to this movie that I really, really kind of dig. So uh, yeah, it's awesome. I, I, I would recommend it to everybody. I honestly think I've only seen that movie once all the way through. And it's been a long time. It, it's actually now a top three Brian De Palma movie for me, which says more Whoa. about Brian De Palma than it does about. <laughs> and well, they haven't seen Scarface. That's that's true. I, I have some omissions in the uh, Brian De Palma filmography, but on the basis of this movie, it doesn't seem like I'm missing much. All right. Well, Todd, hostess and trivia. What are we doing? Uh, I have a couple categories. They're going to be kind of basic categories. Uh, I was just thinking, since we're doing Space Jam, all the all things Space Jam next week, I was looking back in 1996. Space Jam was number 15 at the box office with $83 million. So I was wanting the top 14 at the box office. Top 14 at the box office for 1998 or 1996. Uh, none, of, uh, none of the uh, Oscar winners. That was a notorious year for uh, low-budget movies getting a lot of Oscar love, if I remember correctly. Yes. And so uh, this ranges from $85 million to $306 million. Oh. Yeah, and I don't think any of these movies were nominated for any major Oscar. Like, none of the top eight categories, if that helps you. Um, uh, we will start with Terry. <sighs> okay. Um, I'm having trouble here, but I'm going to start with Brian De Palma and go Mission Impossible. That was number three at 180 million. Nice. Uh, Independence Day. Independence Day was number one. 
Three hundred and six million. Okay, nineteen ninety-six. I'm just having trouble picturing the year. Um, gonna say Mulan. Is that the I don't right think year? That's the right year. Uh, that's not right. Okay. Uh, Twister. Twister was number two. Two hundred forty-one million. Jerry Maguire. That is not correct. That was not what? for a lot of Oscars. He, he said, "Yeah, it had none. None of those were nominated for any of the top eight Oscars." Oh, why well, wasn't? I mean, unless I. Well, I, I, I read a bunch down more. Can I just read them off? I'm looking at my list now too, so I can. Hercules, Up Close and Personal, 101 Dalmatians, James and the Giant Peach, Star Trek: First Contact, Evita. Any of those? Uh, Star Trek is on there. I think that was the only one. Okay. The Rock. Oh, The Rock. The Rock yeah. is on there, yeah. How about, uh, let's see here. Hold on. Let that's... me look up Jerry Maguire. I feel like that should have probably made more than that at the domestic box office. Happy Gilmore? Probably not more than Space that was That was not on there. Striptease? That was not on there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a bomb. <laughs> yeah. Nutty Professor. Oh, yeah. That's probably on there. Yeah. Okay. So, Jerry Maguire should have been on there. It looks like it made $153 million, So There we go. One more point. So, you have three because he missed your next. Oh, like, he missed, you he missed, missed like five of the next six that you said. <laughs> Who knows? I might have gone Star Trek First Contact. That was a big freaking movie. Well, the ones you made. Okay. The Rock was number four. Nutty Professor, number five. Ransom was six. Oh. The Birdcage was seven. By the way, Ransom, uh, Gary Sinise is, is, oh, sorry to say, he's also the bad guy in, in Ransom, just like he was in. Uh, I've never seen that. Oh, shoot. Well, that was a spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> well, we had the spoiler in Snake Eyes, too. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, the Birdcage, uh, A Time to Kill, 101 Dalmatians, First Wives Club. I'll wait for Zach. 101 Dalmatians, First Wives Club, Eraser, oh, Phenomenon, uh, and the Disney movie was a hunch, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Ah. Uh, first so Wives sticking, Club. sticking first with Wives 1996, Club. we have the 1996 IMDb rating, top 14. Uh, but because if you narrow that down, there's like 300 movies, and like a lot of them are foreign movies that are like 50 minutes long that have like a nine or something. We're going English language only, and it needs at least a thousand votes. So, number 15 would have been Lone Star at 7.4. So, we have every, all these 14 are from 7.4 to 8.1. And, and by English, do you mean like American, or can they be British? <laughs> Or... I mean, English language. Okay. So yeah, it could be, uh, they could be from the UK or Canada or whatever. Okay. Okay, we will start with Zach. Fargo? Fargo is number two. 8.1. The English patient? That is not correct, Terry. Oh, gosh. Wow. That just... There were only three overlaps with the last list. This was on my last category, by the way. So Zach wins yeah, four yeah. to one. I, I gathered that. My next guess was a uh, Sling Blade. Sling Blade is also on the list. That is number oh, three. Yeah, number that's eight. a good guess. Anything Shine else? Shine on the list. Shine oh, is yeah, yes. Shine. 
That's, that's a, a seven point seven. That's number six. Shine's got higher rating than English Patient, really. Uh, uh, is Jerry Maguire on the list? <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, I'll, I could look it up if I got it wrong again, but no. I mean, just give us a list. All right. Uh, number one is Train Spotting. Ah. Uh. Number four, Secrets and Lies. Number five, Breaking the Waves. Number seven, Primal Fear. Hamlet, oh, yeah. Star Trek First Contact, Contact uh, Sleepers, Beautiful Thing, which I wasn't sure what that was, but it's apparently this movie. Waiting for Guffman, A Time to Kill, and The Rock. A rock the Rock, critically acclaimed and a box office hit. <laughs> where, where were the Oscar nominations? <clears throat> All right. Well, Zach wins. He gets to host next time and assign us stuff to watch. That that was the that might have been my worst showing of all time in trivia. Two points, Terry. Two points. Two points. No, I got one point. I got one point. You didn't get one. No, my first guess was oh. English patient. I wrote a second one on yours. Maybe it was another Zach point. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap this up with a quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. Zach, you won your first. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, Nicolas Cage as Rick Santoro in the classic uh, Snake Eyes. A lot of quotes you could, uh, could choose here, but uh, this was the quote that Todd was alluding to earlier. He says, uh, well, Kevin Dunn, the uh, character says, this ain't a beach town anymore. It's a sewer. And Rick Santoro says, but it's my sewer, Jiminy, and I love it. I kick around about six square blocks. Everybody knows me. I got the whole town wired. Someday, if I manage to get my face on TV a few times, maybe I'll run for mayor or something. But that's as far as I want to go because I was made for this sewer, baby. And I am the king. And the crowd roars yep. into applause. As the ding happens, the fight starts. <laughs> He's like standing in the first row on his chair or something. I feel like that look at the beginning of the movie with the chains and the... Ch first of all, I didn't know Nicolas Cage had that much, that much chest hair. That I, I, <laughs> oh yeah, that's an iconic Nick Cage look. I want to go as that for Halloween. Although I also have to say, his wife in this movie, her name is Angela, which is a uh, you lose some points there because his daughter is Angela in Matchstick Man. That was just a bad bad association there. But his <laughs> mistress's name is Monique. All right. Well, I'll go next. Uh, my quote comes from uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which I always like to quote. Uh, but I'm quoting it because uh, he, he's talking about being in Washington, D.C., which is where I'm going to be starting tomorrow. And uh, and this one, he says, I don't think I've ever been so thrilled in my whole life. And that Lincoln Memorial, gee whiz, that Mr. Lincoln, there he is. He's just looking straight up at you as you come right up those steps. Just just sitting there like he was waiting for somebody to come along. And at this time tomorrow, I will be at the Lincoln Memorial. So. There you go. I, I had uh, it when I'm in D.C., like 60 percent of the time, I'm just thinking about Jefferson Smith and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, especially when I'm at the Lincoln Memorial. So is it I, is I had it, to quote it? Is it practically your office? Do you have an occasional word with the employees? Yeah, yeah. It, it's practically my office. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Todd, wrap us up. 
Uh, so when when I was watching the Isaac Bahula, it reminded me of a movie that I used to watch a lot when I was a kid, The Pebble and the Penguin, which also uh, which also has an animal in the title. And but it also reminded me of other movies like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles three Turtles in Time, which I probably watched a hundred times when I was a child. And so I'm going to quote that. And uh, because it, it, I can I can relate today because I went on a long run and Michelangelo at one point says, my legs hurt, my arms hurt, my spots hurt, even my bandana hurts. And yes, that's me. That's must, been a good run today. It was a good one. It was a good one. Well, there was also I swallowed a frog. I hope it wasn't an ancestor. That was Dan, that was Donatello. <laughs> Oh, I thought that you were just saying that you swallowed a frog on your jog. That would have been impressive. <laughs> oh, man. I think those may have been the three most random quotes of the day we've ever had. Only one of them had anything to do with anything that had been mentioned so far. And with that, we're going to close it out. So thank you guys so much for listening to episode 134. We will be back at you next week with another episode. Make sure you're listening into everything that's coming out this week, whether it be Daily Notes or The Sideshow or our regular episodes. Uh, But we'll be back at you next week. Until then, have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.